Evan Unger, professional facilitator, grandmaster, talker, extraordinaire. That may be a little bit of an overstatement, but nonetheless, it's good to be here, Felipe. Yeah, thank you for coming on. I want to kick it off right away and ask you, where do people fail in meeting facilitation based on your experience? Well, I'd say a lot of it starts before the meeting. Uh, sometimes we like to use the metaphor of a meeting or a project right, or a consulting engagement being uh, like an airplane flight, right? Take off, then there's flying, which is the bulk of the meeting, and there's landing. I would say a lot of meetings should never be allowed to take off in the first place. Uh, the leader hasn't really thought through why they're having the meeting, what they're trying to get done. And the truth is, they shouldn't be allowed to have a meeting if they can't answer those two questions from the get-go. And so I'd say a lot of it starts before the meeting, probably 90%. And then the rest of it starts when they take off. They don't help the group get clear on some of the fundamental questions, the two being why we're doing this, what we're trying to get done. Love it. Let's go take off. Welcome to the EBFC Show, the easier, better for construction podcast. I'm your host, Felipe Engineer Manriquez. This show is all about the business of construction. Today's episode is sponsored by Bosch Refine My Site is a cloud-based construction collaboration platform that applies lean principles to enable your entire team to plan, communicate, and execute in real time. It's the digital tool that works in tandem with your last planner system process and puts it all together in one simple collaborative ecosystem system. This easy-to-use platform is available in English, German, Spanish, Portuguese, and French and can be used on desktops, tablets, and mobile devices. According to Spencer Easton, Scheduling Manager at Oakland Construction, Refine My Site, in my opinion, is the best, leanest tool on the market for the last planet. Here's what our users have to say. We've looked at three other digital scheduling platforms and none compare to the straightforward approach Refund My Site takes. From milestone planning all the way down to daily tasks, this program gives every general contractor and their trade partners meaningful collaboration, accountability, and KPIs. Register today to try Refund My Site for free for 60 days. Today's show is also sponsored by the Lean Construction Institute. LCI is working to lead the building industry in transforming its practices and culture. Its vision is to create a healthy and thriving industry that delivers outstanding project outcomes every time for everyone. Check the show notes for more information. Now to the show. Welcome to the show, Evan Unger. Evan, it is my pleasure to have another meeting champion on the EBFC show. And so this show is all about easier, better, and faster for construction people. Evan, I think you're going to be giving our audience just nothing but value the entire time. And as Evan starts to introduce himself, ladies and gentlemen, please tap the description below to access the show notes to learn more about Evan and connect with him on social media. I highly recommend you take a look at all of his offerings. He does have things that are going to make your meeting life so much more better. And stay tuned because it's going to be awesome. Evan, tell the good people of the EBFC show a little bit about yourself. And people, don't hesitate to share this show with a friend and tap that like button so that Evan and I know that you like this show and you like this content. Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Felipe. Uh, it is a privilege to do this. And the truth is, this is my first podcast. Uh, I And so a little background. Um, when I was doing a lot of team buildings, we did an exercise called Journey Lines, where we looked at at a fairly profound level, how people got to where they're at. And it's never a straight line, is it? Um, I think when I think about my journey, I think about my father, who used to work for IBM, and he hated his job, right? He was an attorney there. And so as a young kid, I saw him come home drained and depleted. And that stuck with me and had an important part of my journey, right? And I was a good kid in high school, right? Went to an all-boys prep school and wasn't really prepared for college socially. I got there, and the honest truth was, I'd say all of a sudden, having gone to a boarding school, <laughs> this was a picnic. And let me say I had a little more fun than perhaps I should have. <laughs> uh, and didn't do so well in school. Truth is, at Duke, I was teetering on possibly <laughs> dropping out, uh, took a semester off, came back together. And I say a lot of that, honestly, was just being a little fearful 
about, you know, social interactions, to be honest, you know, I'd never been, it was an all boys school around women, but I got myself together and, and went to business school at University of Michigan where I dug in, right? Now I came out of business school and I still didn't really have a sense of what I wanted to do. And in some ways I reinvented my father's life. I worked for Merck, a big pharmaceutical company at the time, was considered America's most admired company. And, you know, it was like they offered me a job and I said, sure. I got in there and realized being inside a large company, it's fairly bureaucratic. Right? It's not a lot of fun. And I struggled. And just to be totally honest, you know, at that point early in my life, I started struggling with depression which was fairly painful through most winters. And I, I, I bit through it, right? And it, it, it hurt at times, but eventually I was, you know, seen as a high potential employee. And they sent me to uh, work with what was a professor of mine at the University of Michigan, Noel Tishy, who was doing at that time, a lot of change and transformation work with Jack Welch at General Electric. And he had a profound impact on me. And Merck invested a lot in me, working not just with Noel, but Peter Senge at the time, Michael Hammer. I put a lot of money in my development. I ended up being the director of change, leadership, and development. I'm four years, five years out of business, but I have no idea what I'm doing, to be honest. <laughs> and and I, gotta, I just got to stop you right there, Evan. For people not listening, like I'm almost coming out of my skin because Peter has mentioned some of these huge iconic people that I've studied, even as a electrical engineer that went into construction so many years ago, when I got onto my lean journey and path, Evan, these are the names of people that I studied. Like I studied all those people in business school and Peter Senge in particular for systems thinking and with Donella Meadows, who was, I think at one point was an undergrad uh, working with him or a grad student potentially, but they were contemporaries. And then of course you got the, you haven't mentioned the powerhouse, Russ Acoff, systems thinker extraordinaire, but all influencing each other at the same time. So people listen up because what Evan's about to drop on you is going to be amazing. So sorry, Evan, I just got excited. I had, I had no, no worries. So anyway, I, at Merck, I then ended up doing large organizational transformation work uh, from a human side, right? I am not a technical person, right? Uh, I'm not an engineer. I'm not an IT folk. Uh, person, but I do work with those people often because I help them with the, what I would say is perhaps the more challenging side of continuous improvement, which is the human dynamic, right? And what I often say is, you know, unfortunately people show up at our meetings uh, and they're a handful. <laughs> okay, well, I'm a handful. Like me, Evan, it's fortunate. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy that people show up at the meeting. Yeah, well, I mean, if no one showed up, I could get done what I wanted to get done. But people do show up. We all have human dysfunction, as I do. And um, you need to know how to get them to come together and collaborate. Right? We have all this diversity, the traditional categories of diversity from a DEI standpoint, but there's cognitive diversity. Right, we have style diversity, leadership-wise. Right, there's those cool blue styles. We've all done those instruments, Myers Briggs, you know, psychometric instruments like that. And so you have all these different people: junior people, senior people, people working as English in a second language. The challenge as a leader is how do I get this group to collaborate to make sure we get the best decisions, and they actually buy in. And that is no small feat. And that's what I've done for really 29 years now, because I'm a little bit older than you, uh, is help people know how to get the best out of a group. And so that's really my journey, you know, coming back to the original question is, it's not a straight line, as I'm sure yours isn't either, Felipe. It's not. But, uh, and you got to rub shoulders with some people that I've admired for a long time. And it's just so cool. So the first time Evan and I talked, I was at a conference uh, about a week ago, and or actually it could have been this week. You know, the time all blends together, Evan. It's when I'm <laughs> and so we, we got to talking right away and it was just a, a short call. And I was I, right away. I was like, Evan needs to come on my podcast because he's doing something in this space, helping people have better meetings and people, you don't appreciate how good a well-run meeting is until you recognize that you've been in terrible meetings your entire life. <laughs> and, yeah. and like, and we're not picking on Merck. Merck is no exception. Yeah. 
And I think Johnson and Johnson would argue that they were America's most admired company, but <laughs> not, not according to Fortune magazine. Back right. then. <laughs> not according to Fortune magazine. But people in large organizations, this is like the typical what happens. And even in general contracting, we see the same thing in large construction project meetings. They tend to become a little bureaucratic and there's nothing wrong with having rules and policies. And Evan's going to share some things that from a systems perspective, I know it's about setting boundary conditions and enabling conditions that are going to create much better outcomes. Now that I know that you're a big time systems guy. Well, that may be a reach. I mean, I went to Peter Senge's workshop for five days and got worked by by him and his his partners, went to some of his undergrads, I think. Uh, but I was fortunate to really get to learn from some top thinkers. I wouldn't consider myself a system thinker as much as an expert in helping people get groups to collaborate. Yeah, you can label it how you want, but in my mind, Evan... You're a big time <laughs> systems guy. Like, how we decompose like the things you're going to do. And you already mentioned a uh, prerequisite. Most meetings should not happen because they're missing prerequisites. So in systems thinking, those are setting rules or boundary conditions to filter what should happen next. So it's like, we're already using some feedback from, from past experiences. And for anyone who's listening and they want to just nerd out on systems thinking, I highly recommend uh, reading Danella Meadows' book, uh, that's a better book. I'll put a link in the show notes below. Uh, Peter's book, The Fifth Discipline, can be a little heady. For yeah. People. And Danella is brings it back to just basic things that we can recognize very easy, including some systems archetypes. But we're getting too nerdy, Evan. Let's go back to facilitation because <laughs> this is the whole the whole reason why. So you've got a very diagonal path, squiggly line to where you are now. What does the everyday look like for you now and how you're engaging with people like myself in the construction industry and other places? Where's your, where's your primary energy going these days? Well, it's interesting. You know, early in my career, when I left Merck, I was doing a lot more consulting, right? And always along the way, teaching people complex collaborative facilitation. Uh, as I've gotten older, the truth is quality of life has become more important. Work-life balance has become more important. And in some ways, I find it more personally meaningful to coach and develop people. So I have shifted more and more of my work uh, over to teaching people how to do collaboration, run complex collaborative facilitation, rather than doing it myself. The pandemic hits, right? I So I used to teach people how to facilitate when we were in the room together, mm -hmm. right? Uh, as the pan, as time went and technologies came along, uh, I started teaching people how to do this virtually, right? And since the pandemic, really, that's all I'm doing. I have some old clients who will ask me to uh, actually run our old program where I'm teaching them how to do face-to-face -face facilitation when people are in the room. But as you know, although the construction industry may be a little different, but with my global clients, they're just not meeting that much face-to-face. -face. Back when I was young, Merck would spend thousands upon thousands of dollars, fly executives into Paris or wherever, and had didn't bat an eye. There was no Zoom. There was no Microsoft Teams. There was no WebEx. I, I started my career, I didn't even have email. No, and, same here. You know, same and, here, Evan. That's how old I am. People, so, I know people listening can't even imagine. Like, just, just pause for a second. All you youngsters that have just grown up with email from child accounts onto adulthood, Evan and I had, we had this thing called postal mail. They're only exactly. Yeah. The mail room was a big thing back then. They had those cards coming and you had to send, have your assistant, you know, wrap those things in those manila envelopes. And they went out across Merck. Uh, there was no email. And I think I got my first email in 94. Uh, and so it really, there same, wasn't. Same Evan. I, I also got my first email account in 1994. <laughs> And so it was a different time, but now I think what organizations are struggling with uh, is how do I make these virtual teams work, right? They are no small feat. And I would say there's nothing that replaces a face-to-face -face meeting, right? At the end of the day, we've lost so much information by only being able to see people, you know, some people are in so close to the screen below their neck, right? And high def is not, it's not, it's not particularly forgiving. So I always, coach people to sit like you and I are sitting just a little bit back 
Right. So you still are able to have a little more dynamics, but we've lost so much in these virtual meetings that our facilitation, our leadership, because this the course we run is really not a course in meetings. It's a course in a style of leadership, and we're using meetings as a lens through which to coach you as a leader, because we're going to spend so much time in meetings. I don't know how much time, Felipe, in your job you spend in meetings. I don't know when you were oh, yeah. in Merck. Five percent. I can answer that question. A percentage. It's so on a construction project site. When I was a project manager, I actually tracked this, Evan, because that's the kind of nerd I am. <laughs> and I was spending more than eighty-five percent of my week in meetings until I adopted Scrum, this agile methodology, and then that that decreased as I got focused on where value created, what value creation happened, and I got into other activities. But still, easily thirty to forty percent of my time, even post agile, was in meetings. Yeah, and the higher we go up in an organization, right, we take more and more senior jobs, the more time we're going to spend in meetings, because that's where major decisions are being made around strategies, how we're going to roll things out, how we're going to design things. And let's be honest, there's a lot of meetings that are just performative, right? I mean, we have them because we have to have them. We want to look good. And, you know, the hard math on this, which I always tell clients, is if you're only spending 50% of your time in meetings and you're only working eight hour days, which I imagine both of us are working a lot more than eight hour days, you will literally spend a year's worth of your life in meetings in under nine years. And if you're working more than eight hour days, you're going to hit that a lot sooner. Right. And it is daunting. And I've always asked, you know, clients for 29 years, two questions, right? And the first one that is dependent on the size of the organization, which is the first question, how many meetings take place in your organization? And with a big global client, they could be over 200,000 meetings in a day, right? The second question I ask them is, what's the average effectiveness of those meetings? And I, I can't tell you how many times I have clients tell me 50% or lower. I have never had a client say 80% effective. I'm still on one hand with, you know, 70% effective. And think about the implications to our organizations. We're spending years worth of our lives in meetings. This is where major decisions are being made, right? And when we run them poorly, it is a leadership issue for me, right? Because I am wasting people's time. And people don't hate meetings. They hate wasting time. Most meetings are a waste of time. Most meetings should be filled before takeoff because the leader has not thought through the fundamental questions of why we're doing this, what are we trying to get done, which means I can't design how we run the meeting. I can't make good choices of who needs to be there given the expertise required and what role they need to play. And then of course, there's the human dysfunction of how the heck do I get these people to work together, right? How, what, what do we have to agree to, just if you will, rules of the road, working agreements, ground rules, to make sure we have a functional meeting. And so it's just fascinating that organizations do not understand how important meetings are, and they don't put a lot of energy into making them better. And I'd say the performance culture of an organization starts meeting to meeting. If we're running a lot of miserable meetings, then that's what we're going to get, suboptimal results. Right? And there's data behind this. I don't know if you read that Atlantic article you know, a couple months ago by Sebastian Bailey, right? And I think the title says it all, right? Just say no, right? How your meeting habit is harming you. There is a direct tie between employee happiness right, and the number of miserable meetings they need to sit through. And there are a ton of them, as we both know. That's right, Evan. Miserable meetings can take down the morale of an entire team. And it doesn't just last for the day that it happens. It can go for days afterwards. And I think you're totally right. Like uh, your your phrasing here, it should be crashed before it takes off. What, what say that one more time to me? I want to get this down because I'm going to steal that phrase. Well, it should be killed before takeoff because you shouldn't. I mean, think about it. Why should I go to a meeting if the leader of that meeting can't tell me why she or he are having a meeting? Right? What the heck we're trying to get done? Right? It's their job to design the process for how we run the meeting. I don't need to know that, but really at the high level, that's the agenda. They better have an agenda and they can't show me that and can't tell me what my role is in the meeting. I'm not going to the meeting. Now, I get it. Politically, politically, we have to go to meetings, right? Our bosses are our boss's boss. We got to go to their meeting. And a lot of times it's the very senior people in an organization who are creating the culture of misery and miserable meetings. 
And, you know, that's what we get, a culture of low performance. So if we start transforming our leadership in meetings, we can begin transforming the culture because that's where we're going to spend so much time in our organizational life. Absolutely. And Evan, you've already given some, some nuggets for people. If you're, if you're out there and you're going to a meeting that doesn't have an agenda or a clear purpose, there's nothing wrong with asking the meeting organizer yes. for those two things. Yeah. So people, we're not just going to be victims of bad meetings forever. And I'm, I'm going to get really sensitive to my one year, every eight years that I'm going to be stuck in meetings. I want to make that year awesome. And so I've only heard one other person besides you, Evan, talk about setting meeting ground rules in those exact terms. And that was Melanie, who's been on the, the podcast before. And I've gotten to facilitate a meeting with Melanie. And I can attest, she did actually start the meeting, setting the ground rules. And people in the meeting, this was a 90-ish, no, 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 it was like a 50-person meeting, Evan. And people's feedback initially was, we don't have time for this. And then when we set the ground rules, it only took like two minutes. After the meeting was over, people said, wow, the meeting finished on time. And I knew exactly why I was here. And thank you. And people even in the, we did feedback at the end of the meeting, which we call the plus Delta. Yes. said, this is the first time that I've ever been invited to a meeting, understood why I was at the meeting and I contributed value. And that, did not happen by accident. That meeting was designed and Melanie and I actually spent a day plus preparing for that meeting because we said to ourselves, we have 50 people coming. We do not want to waste people's time and we want to take advantage of why they're here as subject matter experts. And in that case, it was for design to get maximize their contribution for the better of the entire project. And so that was super designed. I want to just ask you an easy question. So you work with a lot of executives and leaders in meetings. What do you guide people on as far as staff meetings? Because a lot of people listening have suffered through some horrific staff meetings, Evan. So I want to just give some staff meeting benefits out there. Yeah. I mean, here's the first thing I'd say. We, we, We call those standing meetings, right? They may be weekly, they may be daily, they may be you know monthly, quarterly, right? And those meetings really are not as collaborative. They're transmitting information, right? There are a lot of presentations, there's updates. So those are status update meetings. What I tell people is, let's say, for example, you have seven agenda items. That's not one meeting. That is seven meetings. And you have to think about it as seven meetings and run it as seven meetings because we tend to over invite, right? So we got a big department, you know, let's say 15 people. But for the first agenda item, maybe only five of the people really are germane and need to weigh in on that subject. And then for the second topic, it's a whole different meeting. It's a different subset, right? It could have been two of those original five people, but maybe it's a different four people. And then the third uh, topic, is a different subset. And so we know meetings can be painful, especially when the topic itself is not germane or relevant to me. So what we tell people is you've got to take it one by one. For agenda item one, you've got to frame it, explain why we're talking about this, what we're trying to get done. You better have thought about some process to run it, which could be PowerPoint slides followed by Q&A. And then we got to land the plane each topic in terms of getting clear, what do we agree? What do we do next? Who's going to do it by when? That meeting's over. I go to the second agenda item in that status update or standing meeting. It's a whole new meeting. Now, the reality is the people who weren't really participating in that first agenda item, they're multitasking. I mean, that's the truth. They're listening in the background. They may be having, if they're in in the office, another meeting with people standing there in their office while they're listening to, you know, wait to see when I have to weigh in. So we have to be very explicit now as we frame the second mini meeting, if you will, the second agenda item, right? Reset, why are we talking about this? What are we trying to get done? Now you need to say people's names because they weren't listening and you need to just call out. And when we send agendas out ahead of time, it should show who the active participants are for each of those mini meetings. So people can weigh in and are there because they know this is my agenda item. But you've got to say their names. You know, I I need Jane, Joe, Muhammad, 
you know, please come onto video. Right now, video, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of people. I had a client, I won't say who, who said during the pandemic, they told their employees they didn't have to come on video. So they had worked with people during the pandemic they've never seen, let alone met face to face. And, you know, so video is important because people, it's harder to not multitask, but not everyone needs to be on video for every mini meeting, just the people who are relevant. And it's really important. So people know, eh, Right now, this is not my mini meeting. I'm going to multitask. So you have to be very explicit and run each meeting on that kind of that status update, standing meeting, right, as its own mini meeting. And I think that tip is so important to think about the mindset of it being multiple meetings. That is a great tip, Evan. And I, I love, love, love how you focused on use people's first names. Use people's names and make it clear who should be talking about this. And that is something that I just rarely see in staff meetings or what you're calling standing meetings that happen. We see people just rush in, make a ton of assumptions that the right people are paying attention. And then we hear often repeating and re-engaging. If you just would have said, hey, Evan, now we're going to talk about this thing. This is why it is. You're prepared with this. And then you go. And I just... Either I'm facilitating, I'm capturing at the end, and then we're going to land that topic down. And, I, and that's just some good project management 101 where Evan said, who's going to do it? When is it going to get done by? What commitment is made or not made? Is there extra work that has to happen? Is this plane landed or is this agenda item still flying around? And it has, it's going to have to be talked about at the next standing meeting. Hopefully not. Hopefully we bring things to resolution, but sometimes things are messy and they don't go to resolution that way. But super good tips. Well, a couple other things to think that are, I think are really hard to manage is time, right? We tend to, you know, underestimate what we can get done in a one-hour meeting. And we tend to underestimate how much time is needed if we want a rich conversation. So in those mini-meetings, right? So every meeting is its own, every agenda item is its own mini-meeting, which means I've got to time box things, right? Uh, I've got to be able to say, uh, so for this topic, we're going to spend 10, e- 10 minutes, and here's the mini working agreement. When we hit the two-minute mark, we are stopping. We're not going to go late. We're going to capture next steps because I'm going to close that meeting, that mini meeting, right? And then, you know, we're going to move on, right? And so I'm sure we've all been in the meeting, seven agenda items. Topic one goes five minutes late. And topic two goes six minutes late. And topic three goes three minutes late. It starts adding up. There's no time for topic six and seven. So time is an agreement, right? And it means I need a role of someone being the timekeeper, right? Now, the other thing that's important is a lot of topics are, you know, make people aware, present information, right? Uh, Update people. Now, there may be decisions on some of the topics, right? There may be collaboration on certain topics in the status update meeting because, the objective is we're going to decide something. As we set things up for a meeting at the meeting level, but or at the status update at the mini meeting level, we've got to contract for how we're going to decide. Who is the ultimate decision maker for this topic? Right? Is it the lawyer if it's a legal issue? Right? Is it the subject matter expert? If it's a technical issue. Is it the vice president? You know because they are the person who has to sell it upstairs to the CEO. So I need that contract for now. In our course, we talk a lot about consensus, right? It would be great to reach consensus, but we don't always need it. And often we don't have time for it. So if we can't reach consensus, what are we gonna do? That's why it's so important to decide how to decide so we can turn to the lawyer and say, all right, we're running out of time. What do you wanna do? You're the expert. Right. So setting up the contract for how we're going to decide both at the full meeting level in a workshop meeting like the one you described with 50 people or a status update meeting at the agenda item by agenda item level is so important. And I want to be clear, consensus does not mean compromise to suboptimize the quality of the decision. Right. I think Patrick Lencioni talks about, uh, you know, people won't buy in if they don't get to weigh in. So what it means is everyone gets to weigh in. They'll support the decision, but it doesn't mean we get to drive our opinion through the group. And that is the art of facilitating a collaborative conversation, setting up the container for decision making, having good process structure 
So we hear from all voices, right? That junior person who may be an analyzing style, who's an introvert, who's speaking English as a second or third language, who may be a person of color, may have exactly the expertise to help the group make a better decision, but I don't have enough process structure so they can weigh in and we suboptimize the decision. So those are some things, decision-making is so important. And the reality is you have to decide how to decide before you get to the meeting. Absolutely. Otherwise the meeting becomes around, how do we want to decide? It's like, yeah, well, you know, I want to decide or let's vote. And so all the work in a high stakes meeting, as you know, is what happens before the meeting. Very true. And I like to use topics like, or techniques like brainstorming in silence, especially when you want to get those voices, like you said, I'm, I'm very extroverted, Evan, as you know, and I can talk forever without uh, blinking or even pausing for basic human necessities like air and water. But other people are very reserved and analytical, yeah. like you said, and their process is different. So as a meeting facilitator or a leader, you've got to make space to let that genius spark through yeah. or you're going to miss it and it's going to cost you. And I don't like to be sub-optimized. I like optimization so much, Evan, that it's on my sleeve. Remember what arm it's on. Yeah, there it is. You picked the right arm. This is optimizing the system right here on my right sleeve because it's important that we don't lose that optimization capability. But people, if you're just going to talk your way through, or if you go the other way and you just only serve the introverted people and don't let the extroverted people weigh in by talking out loud, then you're also missing part of the genius there. Yeah, and it's interesting. Technology allows us to do some things that we couldn't do face-to-face. Now, the technique silence is such an important word. Human beings need processing style. I often joke, right? Um, You know, introverts, uh, they need time to think before they speak. Extroverts, they should take some time to think before they speak. And the thing that the chat does Right. And there's a technique. I don't know who came up with a nominal group technique. And you would never say this to a group. It sounds dangerous. They will duck and take cover. But it is what you said. Frame what you want people to respond to, what the question is you want to hear from them. Give them silent time to think. Now, what we often have people do is is in the chat, type their response, but give them time. Don't let them submit the chat until everyone's had time. We call it a simultaneous chat because we know when I have mixed hierarchy, everyone wants to see what the boss, right? She or he's thinking about. And so by using the chat, it gives people time so you hear from everyone, right? You hold the tension. They don't know what, and then you say, all right, let's submit it. Now let's look at the chat. So the fact that we have the chat is a very powerful feature. Now, when we were running this face-to-face, you would just give people the time to think on a piece of scratch paper. And people need to just, the simplest thing to do is just use more round robin, right? Making sure you're going around hearing from everyone. And again, it doesn't have to be all 14 people in the meeting because some people may not have the expertise. It could be seven people in that mini meeting. And so, you know, the chat allows us to do some things we could not have done when we were working face-to-face. And when we are face-to-face, I like to call on the most extroverted people last. And if I'm yeah. facilitating, I'm going to go last because I want, it's my job as a facilitator to pull forward everybody's ideas and thoughts. And so listen, listen up people. I'm going to say that a second time because I've seen facilitators fail on this every single week, all year long and last year and the year before and the year before that. <laughs> if you're facilitating a meeting, you're responsible to pull forward and the ideas from the other people first. As a facilitator, if you go first and share your thinking first, you anchor everybody else. And we call it sometimes poisoning the well so that nobody else, no other idea can survive and only your idea is gonna survive. And that's not the point. If that was the case, let everybody else go and go be an independent value contributor and do it yourself. But if you're taking the time to bring people together and come in, shut up, let them go, and then contribute. You still, as a facilitator, can absolutely contribute at the end. It's totally appropriate, like Evan said. And I think that time boxing doesn't have to even be as long as you think, depending on how you frame it and the better directions you give people for what you want, especially when you're going to use the simultaneous chat feature in a hybrid meeting or remote meeting, the better the question you set up, the better and richer the responses you're going to get. 
and don't feel bad. If you mess up, iterate, you can say, okay, we react to what you get, reframe the question and have people refine their responses. And all that can still be done in minutes, not days, not weeks, not years. So that's really good advice. What are some, go ahead. I love what you're saying. I want to build on that because there's some golden rules that have been around for good process facilitation. Uh, One of the simplest one is never do for the group what they can already do for themselves. You have experts, let the experts talk, right? And what you mentioned was so important. And the other golden rule, you know, is ask before tell, right? Because your point's such a good one, especially if I'm more senior than people. If I tell first my thoughts, let's just say our objective is to figure out how to improve low morale, right? then everyone's looking to me as the senior person. I have suppressed conversation. The group can think for themselves. And there's so many different ways we might think about leadership. I mean, there's thousands of articles written every year, probably 30,000 books written in the last 50 years, maybe more. Maybe one one year. (laughs) One of the simplest ways to think about our leadership is just think about it on a continuum. We're on one side of the continuum, right? There's two aspects to a meeting. There's the content for the meeting. That is what it is we want the group to decide on. In this case, what the root causes of low morale. That's the content. The other side of your highline is the process for how do I get these 13 people to engage, to collaborate, so we tap the full expertise, the full richness of the thinking. And so I've always got to be balancing the content and the process. So leadership, I could focus as a leader 100% on the content, come into the meeting, as the expert on what's happening in morale, right? And I'm sharing all my thoughts and opinions on what the root cause of low morale is. That's the far extreme. I'm 100% focused on the content. Now, the other side is even though I have opinions on how we, what the root cause of low morale is, I realize it's more important for me to remain neutral because I am neutral on what ultimately we decide the root causes. Now, what I am not neutral is, is how the heck we're gonna run the meeting, right? Why we're having the meeting, what we're trying to get done, how we're gonna do it, what roles we need, what agreements we need. So I am an expert in that. I'm an expert in the collaboration. And if I operate on the extreme side of the continuum, on the content side, I'm suppressing conversation. I'm doing all the heavy lifting, all the work for the group, right? I'm deciding what the root causes the low morale. But if I'm really good as a leader, I can run a meeting and never tell the group what I think the right answer is. Because I know how to create space with tools you mentioned, right? Brainstorming, storyboarding, affinity diagramming, force field analysis, you know, fishbone diagram, and there's so many tools, right? By bringing good process structure and bringing the right tools, right? And the right experts together, we get the right decision. Right. And that's what we're teaching people is how to run a complex collaborative meeting with very senior people where your leadership reputation is on the line and never have to ever tell them what you think. That is what the art of leadership really is. And that's what we try to help people realize. You can be a great leader and never tell people what to do, what to think. Oh, I love that, Evan. Now, Evan, I'm going to put you on the spot as a good facilitator. As you're dropping all those nuggets, what would you title this episode? That's a, I would call it, I would call it the art of leadership, right? I think leadership really, it's amazing because we see great leaders and they're not saying as much, right? They know how to guide a process towards an objective, right? And I'm trying to remember, I don't know, have you ever read uh, Lao Tzu, Tao Te Ching, any Eastern philosophy? Of course I have. Yeah, so I think there's different, you know, translations of it. But one of the ones, you know, that I always love, I'm trying to think who it was. I think the last name was Mitchell. Um, I'd have to go look the first name. Is when the work is done, the people say, amazing. We did it all ourselves. And that is the art. You know, a group really shouldn't, you don't have to impose your will on a group to help them be successful. And that's what we're teaching people, the art of leadership. And that would be the podcast, because the truth is this, it really isn't about meetings, right? 
it's about leadership and our leadership is going to show up because we are going to be spending so much time, as we said earlier, in meetings. And when I run a lot of bad meetings, people are going to see me as a bad leader. It's that simple. I love that quote from the Dow to Jing. Yeah, they say that uh, if, you, if the leader's done right, if the leader has leaded correctly, the people don't even feel or notice that the leader is there. Yep. That is the ultimate highest level of leadership. And it's like you said, it's a continuum. And they even, in the Tao Te Ching, they even talk about a dictatorship or totalitarian, yep. you know, that that's at the lowest end where you have to be telling people everything. And that's exhausting. Yeah. If I have to tell a team every step to take, I'm going to get real tired. But if I'm facilitating a meeting where I'm just barely guiding and just setting up using good process, I can do that all day long, yep. 15 hours a day if I wanted to almost without burning any calories. Yeah, one metric is who's more tired after the meeting, the group or you, right? <laughs> and you want the group to do the work, right? That golden rule never do for the group for what they can do for themselves. <clears throat> if we were face-to-face, -face, as simple as they can go hang the flip charts, right? <clears throat> they can go do that kind of stuff. But more fundamentally, what they can't do for themselves is guide the process. Although even then, as we get good at this, as you know, if we were in the room and you were doing something like storyboarding or affinity diagramming with post-it notes, sticky notes on the wall, and we all have done dot voting, at some point, once you get them clear what you're doing and how they're doing it, you can sit down and say, you know, hey, why don't you all keep working? And you literally can work backseat from behind the group and only intervene when the group gets stuck. Because the group can, once they understand what they're doing and how they're doing it, right, they don't need you anymore, right? They don't need you. And then your next, when you get to the next process step, maybe going from something like storyboarding to sticky dot voting, right, then you got to come to the front of the room again, explain the fundamentals of why we're doing this, what we're trying to get done, and give them good process structure, right, how the voting's going to work. Now, one of the places voting doesn't go well is people don't frame criteria, all right? Some people are thinking through what's more most important to my morale. And other people are thinking about, well, what's most important to the team morale? And some people are thinking through what's gonna be the easiest thing to fix. But the criteria is the real art. The tools are fairly easy to execute, but to do it in a refined way that'll make sure the right decision comes out of the bottom of the conversation is the hard part, but I've got to explain that. Check for clarity. One of the simplest things we teach, check <laughs> for clarity. We think we're clear. They, we think they're clear on how the voting is going to work. We let them vote. They vote on things based on the wrong criteria. And then it was just an exercise in throwing sticky dots at colorful post-it notes. Right? And so checking for clarity before you execute any process step is one of the simplest things we can do because just because I'm clear doesn't mean they're clear. And the important thing is we get them clear before we let them execute a process step. And so once they're clear on the voting, my job is done. Get out of the way, let them vote, right? They can count the number of votes, right? They can, if we're face-to-face -face again, stack which one's got the most votes. I don't really need to do that much. And that really is the art of let the group do the work. They're the experts. If I didn't, you know, why have a team if I'm going to do all the talking? Exactly. Why have a meeting if I'm going to do all the talking? If the decision's already been made, you know, some, just tell them what the decision is, right? Let's not play games. And I see a lot of leaders <clears throat> who pretend to be neutral. They made the decision. They bring the group together. And then all of a sudden they're trying, they're not really facilitating. What they're trying to do is get the group to come along to what they already decided. And people are smart. They're like, just tell us what you want to do, right? And it's always a trade-off. When I decide for the group, right, I get my way. It's faster. I don't have to listen to them. But the trade-off is I didn't make the best decision because I had 13 other people who could help have different expertise, make a better decision, and they're not going to buy in. And that is the trade-off, right? It's quicker and faster to decide for a group. I get my way, I have control, but what I'm trading that off on, did I get the best decision with maximum buy-in? I think great leaders, what do they want? They want the best decision. They want maximum buy-in because then people are gonna implement. And if it was a good decision, there's not rework cycles. We address 
the root cause, not the symptom. And so it is in some ways simpler than we think. And at the same time, most people are never trained on how to run a high stakes collaborative meetings, whereas everyone is trained on how we do presentations. Any corporate university always has executive presence or executive presentation skills available, but they don't often teach people the art of leadership because a presentation is merely a communication issue. Right? It's a communication, and it's important. I don't want to minimize presentation, but it is not a leadership issue. Leadership is, can I get a group of dysfunctional human beings, and we all are dysfunctional, as I said, to come together, make the best decision, get them buy-in so they go implement. And that's what we do, and we've done it for 29 years. And I wouldn't say we're the best in the world at this because I haven't seen everyone, but I've done this long enough. I'm confident we're in the 95th percentile of teaching the fundamentals of complex collaborative facilitation. Yeah, this is where we we sparked uh, well together. And when we first were talking, Evan, I was immediately aligned as the the content you were sharing. And when you asked the first question about, you know, how effective are the meetings that you've seen? I said it's less than 20%. And you were <laughs> that's when you said, like, you know, the the stats are higher. Even people that try to say it's more effective, if you really think about it, analyze it, it's not that good. And I think you're you're spot on that we so often get these presentation skills our whole lives. Like I remember when my son was in kindergarten, he was already doing presentations on PowerPoint. Yeah. And like, you know, different dinosaurs and real simple stuff. And then that just continues all the way through school. But at no time can I think of having seen or heard a story of him being taught how to collaborate. Yeah. Remember, you know, he's in middle school now. They had some group uh, breakdowns and he was using what I taught him in Scrum to coalesce the team around a process so that they could collaborate. And his group finished before all the other kids. And I just kept thinking like, well, the difference is not that he used Scrum. The difference is he used processes intuitively with what would work to create a process to enable people to collaborate and get that contribution because kids are just like adults, Evan. They're very sensitive to people not pulling their own weight. And they have a very high intuition. You can tell when someone in the group is not doing their part and it affects the productivity of everybody else. Yep. Like if you and I are working on something and you're doing all the heavy lifting and I'm doing nothing. It's going to slow you down. You'd be like, what is Felipe doing to contribute here? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the freeloader effect. Right. And we see it. It's interesting you say that because I'm not, it's triggered a spark because, you know, I've, I've trained all types of people, right? IT people, engineers, statisticians, doctors, lawyers, uh, salespeople, it doesn't matter. As we progress in an organization, our role is to get groups to collaborate independent of what our educational background is. But what triggered the spark is, you know, having done this around the world in so many different countries, uh, the group that I remember the most, uh, and I've done it a few times, was I'm here in Denver. And the Student Board of Education for the uh, Denver Public School System was some of the elite students. Well, when I ran the course for them, they're sponges. They don't have the bad habits that we do as we get into our organizational life. And they just, they are able to absorb things because they're just like, this is what you do. Sure. Right. Got it. And it's amazing to watch those kids take stuff on. And I just love what you're saying, because we are working in groups from the time we're very young. And even when I think now about business school, right? I mean, isn't that what, when I got my MBA at Michigan, that's a lot of what they were doing, group work. Because as we get into our organizational life, it is the human side of things, right? That actually allows us to be successful. So we can bring all the best tools and technical knowledge, but it really is the relational side of things that allows us to be effective as a leader. And, you know, it's just funny that you talk about you know, your child that they are learning so many things so early and they're sponges. Let's teach them the art of leadership really when they're young. Yeah. And I think that that rule that you laid down, like why or don't do for the group, what they can do for themselves. That's something that we need to say more and more and more. <laughs> Definitely not said that enough, but I think the, you know, the, the education system that, that most people go through and even people that, that end up in the trades in the craft, some of the, I've seen some of the craft leadership, that some of the unions do, and even some of the non-union companies in the different trades. And they put people together in groups all the time, but they're so focused on the outcome. They're not thinking about, are we putting these groups together with some good 
boundary conditions, some good process rules so that they can, they can get there to, to better results with less stress and effort and frustration. And I think that's what, what you're offering and what you're teaching people is that all that hidden stuff that happens accidentally with just way too much trial and error and little to no feedback to see if it even works or not. People just take for granted, like we're just going to work together in teams and they never stop and think like, how well are we working together in this team? Like how much of my life am I wasting in bad teamwork and in bad meetings or, yeah. or sub-optimized leadership? It's a big number people. So <laughs> you got to keep learning and there's things that you can apply. You've heard Evan give you some really basic rules that you can bring to your team. And it doesn't matter if you're the facilitator or the leader. I want all of us to come out of this thinking that we've got some skin in the game. It's your time too. And you can either, if you feel comfortable to reframe in a bad meeting, or if it's, if you can't do that because of the hierarchy and the power struggle to work with that leader offline outside of the meeting, if you're, if you're frustrated and struggling, very likely the rest of your team is too. You're not alone typically. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, a lot of that work with the senior leader is before the meeting getting them aligned, why they want to have this meeting, what they're doing, and good consulting skills in many ways is getting alignment. And so we need to make sure we don't have big surprises for that senior person, because there are senior people who, you know, they don't want to make decisions because they're committed. So you better have had a conversation with them so they know, let's just make sure we're clear. This is why we're doing this. Let me get some context around this. Here's what we're doing. How do you want the group to decide? All right, you want their input, but you're ultimately going to be the decision maker. Great, let's tell them that in the beginning, right? So they don't think they get to decide necessarily. Because we're not saying you're always neutral, right? You may well be the person who has the deepest expertise who can be the ultimate decision maker. But what you want to make sure is I've gotten the best thinking from my team because I had good process structure so that I make the most informed decision. Because again, it could be that junior person speaking English as a second language who has expertise. I don't know because I'm way up in the organization who, if I just knew how to get them to weigh in, could help me make a better decision. And a lot of senior leaders are never taught this. And a lot of senior leaders create the conditions for misery because they're just bad at running meetings. And they're not aware how just simple hierarchy impacts a group, even if they you know, are really warm, open hierarchy where it's organizations are political, right? They just are. And we need to really know how to create space for everyone to weigh in. And that's what we teach people. And it's a boot camp, Felipe. I mean, it's four days and we're running four day Zooms, right? Two days in a Monday, Tuesday, and then the next week, two days, it could be the, it would be the next Monday, Tuesday, but it's mostly practice, right? Because that's how we learn as adults. People need to be worked. It's a boot camp. They're going to get intensive feedback, intensive coaching, right? Because we don't learn by listening or watching. We learn by doing. And in this day and age, everyone wants a quick fix. And there's no way around it. And I often say to clients, they they come watch the program because anyone can come observe it. And they say, I love this. What I'd like you to do, though, is send 10 two-hour videos, self-paced learning. My people can watch on their computer at their own time. And I say the same thing. I'm not interested. Go find another consultant who's going to waste your time. And then I'll ask them if they're old enough. I'll say, did you have kids who learn to drive? And they'll be like, yeah, of course. Like, would you ever let your kids watch 10 videos on how to drive and hand them the car keys? Would you ever let your kids watch 10 videos on how to swim and push them in the deep end? Of course not. But in this day and age, we want a quick fix. And there's no way around it. It takes practice, coaching, feedback right? And continuous improvement because every meeting is an opportunity to get better, right? And so this is the art of leadership. This is what we do. It's something I'm passionate about. I love it. And I'm grateful I get to do this because it is a real gift that I'm able, I mean, to coach people in this space. And I've had a lot of great coaches early in my career. And I just, I love what I do. And I think it's incredibly powerful and practical for people. So that's 
you know, who I am, what I'm up to. Uh, what else would be helpful to your audience, Felipe? Yeah, I love that, Evan. That's a good thing. I think it's worth thinking about people as you're listening to what Evan's saying. This has to be taught, learned, practiced, and then given meaningful feedback to see how you're doing. Because I would never use videos only to get someone to learn a skill. You've got to have somebody who's who's been there, who's done the learning that you trust, and then you can get the good feedback. And, and the, the environment that Evan has set up with this workshop style, it's perfect blend of theory, setting up the conditions, letting people practice, getting rapid feedback to adjust, and then practice again. And so you come out of it for, for four workshops later, you're now on the path to bring the skills inside, internalize them, and then use them. And I bet most people can start using the benefits even after day one. Oh, yeah. Well, without question. Because the nice thing, we have three days in between where they go apply this stuff. And if you just do a better job on takeoff, on framing the meeting, right? You're going to have a much better meeting because, as you said earlier, most people have no idea why we're we here. What are we trying to get done? Right. They're just like, we just seem, what is the, what do we do? Are we just talking? Right. So if you just get a group clear on the why, what, right, how, right, who's going to do what to whom and the agreements, you are going to have a better meeting. And so, you know, that's, and, and the interesting thing is it's a training program. Let's be honest. We've all been to them, we've been sheep dipped. The real work is when you come back. All right. And from a continuous improvement standpoint, every meeting is an opportunity to get better. The nice thing also about working virtually, which would not be the case, because we videotape people, so they go watch it during the program. But the great thing about working virtually, it, unless it's highly confidential, you can videotape yourself in every meeting, go back and watch, and always ask the group for feedback. So when you do that plus Delta, because landing the plane is the other place we get a lot of plane crashes, takeoff and landing. It's a continuous improvement process, both at the meeting level, right? Because I want feedback on what worked, what didn't work, right? I also want feedback on my leadership, right? And if I don't ask for it, I won't get it. And why guess? Because I don't want people talking about how ineffective I am outside of the meeting. I'd rather know it so I can course correct and say, great, I didn't realize you weren't clear when you did that. Thank you for letting me know next time, right? I'm going to make sure we stop for a moment and get clear before we do the voting. Right. So it really is continuous improvement all the way up and down at the at the meeting level, the leadership level, the project level. Right. That's what we do. Lessons learned. Right. And it is that feedback cycle that I think really is the gift to get better and better. And that's what we try to help people do. And it is just it's practical. I love that. The last thing I want to leave people with, Evan, I think would would be great for the audience to hear is this concept of time boxing. I've mentioned it a lot and I've talked about it in my scrum training and my scrum course. And I even had somebody, I was on the phone early this morning and they said to me, like, I learned, I, I became a registered scrum master. And then I went right away, like you recommended to go run my first sprint planning meeting with the team. And, and they said, I learned so many more things that I didn't think I would learn in, in a short 15 minute meeting. It was incredible taking those concepts. So just Paint a picture for people on what a time box is. Well, it could be, it could apply at different levels, right? So first of all, we have the meeting time, right? So let's say it's a one hour meeting, right? Now within the meeting, every agenda item, right? Is another mini meeting. So I have to have a sense of time for that. And then even, you know, at the process tool level, let's say we're doing, you know, voting, which can be done virtually, right? There's all, we work in two platforms in the course. We work in Mural. Right, but Miro and Lucid Spark, there's so many different ones. And we also show people how to run a high stakes spreadsheet. But at the process step level, right, the amount of time it takes people to vote, I time box there or I could time box brainstorming, right? Or time box how long they get to think before we put things in the chat. But the thing is, and one of the you know, things we do with the group is thinking about good collaborative design, uh, everything takes longer if we want rich conversation. And the more people we have, the longer the meeting's gonna take because a meeting with four people, I only have to socialize four voices. A meeting with 14 people, if it's gonna take longer because I gotta socialize 14 points. But what time boxing simply is, is first planning and being realistic about time, right? 
and try to do less in a meeting and be realistic what you can get done in a one hour meeting, right? And then what I'm doing is saying, all right, how much time do I have for the meeting? Inside of that, how much time do I have for each agenda item? Okay, and let me be realistic of when I run things, how much time, and then when I do something, I say to the group, all right, you know, we're gonna spend uh, five minutes on this. Can I get a timekeeper to cut us off at the four minute mark, right? And it's important to have a role of a timekeeper. And again, I could do that for the group, right? But when I apply the golden rule, never do for the group what they can do for themselves, they can keep time, right? They can call each other on working agreements. And so, you know, I think just being mindful of time is so important. And then it's also an agreement we put in place at different places during the meeting. We landed the plane. Very special thanks to my guest. I'm Felipe Engineer Manriquez. The EBFC show is created by Felipe and produced by a passion to build easier and better. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. Let's go build. <laughs>